Hello everyone, it's Andy here. This is not a paid advertisement, so please do not skip this. This is in conjunction with the registered UK charity, Beauty's Legacy. Beauty's Legacy are a fabulous charity, which I personally love. They look to find and reunite missing pets with their loved families. And today I want to highlight for them one missing pet. She is called Millie. She's an eight-year-old black, small-built greyhound, and she has grey inflects in her coat and a grey muzzle. She also has a small white spot to her chest and white to bottoms of her feet. When she went missing, she went missing from her home in the Rossington area of Doncaster, DN11. She's been missing since the 29th of July, 2023. She has a red tartan collar on. Now, there is a reward. Please, let's help reunite her with her family for Christmas. I am going to put the poster out on our, all our social medias, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please contact Beauty's Legacy directly, because they are coordinating the, the hunt for Millie. Their telephone number is 07-866-026-343. Even the smallest bit of information has been known to find the animals and lead them back to their owners. Remember, there is a reward for finding Millie, and no questions will be asked. All we want is a safe return of Millie to her family. Thank you all, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday period, and let's help get Millie home for Christmas. everyone and welcome my name is rachel and i'm andrew and we are picture the scene podcast a true crime podcast aiming to put you the listener at the scene of the crime we bring you a new episode on a weekly basis with andrew mainly focusing on the lesser known crimes from the uk and ireland and at times me taking on some of the bigger more well-known cases as you well know as we are a true crime podcast we must warn you that listener caution is always advised However, I just wanted to pause here today and say, I don't think I have taken on a well-known case and all will become a bit clearer in a moment. But shock horror, I'm not sure you will have heard of this one, Andrew. Well, that's interesting. Oh, yeah. If you happen to like what you hear, then please spread the word to your friends and family about us. Also, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. And wherever you listen, if you have the capability, then why not give us a rating and review as well? As always, these ratings and reviews mean so much to us, not only because we love hearing from our wonderful listeners, but it encourages other people to go find us and give us a try. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yes, thank you. And we've had some good ones recently. I know this will be a bit delayed for the people leaving it, but we've had some great ones recently, including the wonderful person from Alabama. I'm glad that you're enjoying us. Oh, yeah. Andrew's been complimented on his deep voice as well. And if you like us that much, you want to support us, you can do so for less than the cost of a small Americano on Patreon. With our sign-up starting from as low as £1, we release bonus content every month and we also take recommendations from our Patreon subscribers. Your support for our pod really does mean the world to us. So thank you to each and every one of our Patreon subscribers because without you, we probably wouldn't still be here. 
Exactly. They're the best. And finally, for now, the links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or by visiting patreon.com forward slash scenepod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash S-C-E-N-E-P-O-D. So, Andrew, before we get into it today, how have you been since we last recorded? Been good. Busy, 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 but good. Looking forward to this. Sparkling. Sparkling, obviously. (laughs) Good, good. And one last question for you. Are you ready for some true crime? Of course I'm ready. I'm always ready. Before we get started today, though, I just wanted to dedicate our episode to a very brave woman and listener of our pod who messaged us about this case. We won't be naming her, and we also won't be going into any further detail about the specifics of her connection with the case, which I'm sure you can understand. But you know who you are, and this case today is for you. So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Yes, people, it's amazing to think how many brave people are out in the world, isn't there? Absolutely. Okay, so today we're heading back to Wednesday, the 7th of March, 2007, and to the Town Hill Park area of Southampton, England. As the sun rose at around 6.58 on this morning, the temperature was a cool 5 degrees Celsius, or around 41 degrees Fahrenheit. But as the morning progressed, the cool weather gradually transformed, reaching peak highs of 11 degrees Celsius, around 52 degrees Fahrenheit, at around midday. Before we dive into what happened on the 7th of March, I want to rewind slightly to two months earlier, in January 2007, when 47-year-old David William Tiley was released from a 10-month prison sentence where he'd been recalled due to breaching bail conditions. Tiley had been jailed back in 1995 after being convicted of two counts of rape and one of buggery against a woman. He was sentenced to a total of six years in prison. Following this prison sentence, he was placed on the sex offenders register, a condition of which is always to notify police of his whereabouts, including where he resides. His latest prison recall was due to a breach of these conditions, as he'd not notified authorities of his new address, having moved in with his then-girlfriend, Susan Hale, in August 2006, at her one-bedroom ground-floor flat in Megson Avenue. Shortly after his release from his latest prison stint, he made the decision to propose to Susan, despite having only met the 49-year-old mother of five, whose children were now fully grown, just eight months earlier in the summer of 2006. Upon his release from prison, Susan had been notified of his status as a registered sex offender, but had still agreed to marry him and allowed him to live with her in her flat on a permanent basis. And he actually became her carer, her full-time registered carer at this point, um, which I'll go into shortly about why she needed care. Okay, well, she must have loved him then to be told, hey, your future partner's a convicted rapist and she's happy to marry him anyway. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether they actually go into details of the crime, do they? I know that no, they she have would have been notifi- notified of his registration on the sex offenders list, but. Well, yeah, no, I, I, f- I think they do because it, when it's. I know, well, I don't say I know from what I've read. I believe that when it's children, they notify that it is against children, so the person mm. knows. Okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't. I... But isn't that a different list? Isn't that the child sex offenders? No, register? no, it's it's all it's all one register. Oh wow. Um, 
even like violent offenders can go on it as well because it's technically called yes. visor. But um, yes. but it's all one register. It's just how they deal with them is differently. But um, but sex offenders like because sex offenders you can even go on a sex offenders register these days for say that urinating in public and stuff like that. So oh uh, oh yeah, indecent. Um... Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 all one, but. If they do have to say, hey, you've got children in your family and this person is a, either committed crimes against children or whatever related to children, then wouldn't if she is a woman and he is convicted of raping women... Hang on, his crime wasn't against children. No, no, but if she's a woman and he's he's convicted of raping women, surely they'd have to say to her, hey, technically you're at risk. She was classified as vulnerable um, and obviously... Taking him into her residency permanently, I think that's why the police felt the need to tell her. But I, I, oh, no, I you don't. To, you have to tell them anyway. And when you're on the register, you have to. Um, if the one is living with, even if you're not in a relationship, say you've got a lodger, or you get a lodger, for example, you still have to. They give you the choice of notifying them yourself or them notifying them. Okay. Um. So Susan was living with a rare degenerative brain disorder. Uh, Now, I'm really sorry about my pronunciation here. I'm going to try, but please forgive me. Cerebular ataxia. Um, So that caused her difficulty in walking and in speaking. Uh, So she actually had a mobility scooter, um, but she was able to hold down a part-time job um, at a charity shop locally. Uh, she, but she did need frequent home care visits and had done for the majority of her life uh, since being diagnosed with this brain disorder. She had three regular carers visiting her property to help with her day-to-day activities, such as bathing and managing household chores. But since David had come on board as a full-time carer, um, whereas those carers probably frequented like every other day, maybe twice a week, uh, depending on who who was responsible for what, those care visits had uh, reduced slightly, and there were certain activities that David did not help her with that those carers still came in to support with. Okay. Okay. So back to the seventh of March, and by eighteen o six, the sun was setting as Susan and David settled down for their evening meal. At some point over dinner, Susan began questioning David on his past criminal convictions. Now, like you've just said. She must have been quite a woman for like taking him in, knowing about his past. But I'm guessing that even the strongest of people at times would have weak moments where they'd be like, you know, have you told me everything? Or I, I don't know the ins and outs of this, um, the, the questioning, but I can imagine, you know, there, there were days when she just really wanted to challenge him and, and like understand how this man who she was going to marry had had done such awful things. You'd imagine, wouldn't you, Rachel? I mean, I've never been in that situation, thankfully, but mm-hmm. you'd imagine that when she is informed of whatever she's informed of, because um, I can't say I'm 100% correct here, because, again, I've not been in that situation, but it's probably just matter-of-fact, because they're just informing. So... And your instinctive, uh, you'd, you'd think that natural human instincts would be that you'd want all the details. 
because it must be pretty hard. If you agree to marry someone, you must have human here. You must love them. So therefore, it'd be pretty hard, I'd say, to marry up the person that you're in love with with this other person that you've been told about. So yeah, you'd naturally want all the details, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, this this questioning resulted in the pair entering into a heated argument. And Susan, who wasn't backing down from the argument with her fiancé, began taunting him about his past. So David calmly walked into the kitchen, where he opened the middle drawer, grabbed a hammer, and returned to the dining table, delivering one clear blow to her head, rendering her unconscious. Bloody hell. Yeah. Because that's a bit OTT, isn't it? Like... To do that, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, like if if we just put a pin in that for a moment and think, she's this vulnerable woman in in a mobility scooter, who's got her own property, probably, you know, a decent income coming in, um, and and David at the time he's unemployed, you know, he's seen her as a bit of a meal ticket, and she's never really challenged him or questioned him. She's just been grateful of his love and affection. All of a sudden, she's like coming down on him and saying, "Well, you know, two months after he's out of jail, you know, I'm feeling a bit confident here. What's gone on?" Um, and he, I can imagine, like, he just see red in that respect of like, "How dare you, you know, question me?" And he, he, he just probably, again, I'm making an assumption here, but probably didn't like her tone as well, and thought like, "How dare you talk to me like that?" Because if he's been convicted of rape and buggery, you know, he obviously doesn't have respect for women and for um, human beings. So, you know, and I, I know I've made a massive statement there um, and everyone has the opportunity to change, but he has just grabbed a hammer and hit his fiance in the back of the head with it. So, you know, clearly he's not um, managed his... Um, anger and also not rehabilitated from his past crimes. No, I, I think you're exactly right. I didn't think about that when I said that's a bit um when I said that's a bit OTT because you're right, this rape by definition is a violent crime, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Um so yeah, it's for, for a normal person like us, it would be OTT. Yeah. Obviously different boundaries for people like that, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So while Susan was out cold, David moved her body into the bedroom. He gathered some dressing gown cords and bound her ankles and wrists together. He then gagged her and sexually assaulted her before leaving the room once more and returning with a six-inch kitchen knife. David stabbed Susan a total of four times, twice in the head and twice in the chest, before sitting back and watching her struggle in her last moments of life. David then went on to cover Susan's body with a duvet. He switched the fan on in the bedroom to keep it a cool temperature. And for the next seven days, he would spray deodorant under the doors to the flat to mask the smell of a decomposing body. Despite being under police supervision at the time, David continued to live in the flat as normal and would also be caught on CCTV over the next week or so, visiting the amusement arcade and local shops. He also used Susan's phone to send text messages to her friends so they were not alerted to her disappearance. It was just eight days later, on Thursday the 15th of March 2007, when one of Susan's carers, 
39-year-old mother of two, Sarah Merritt, was on a routine visit to the ground floor flat, that David Tiley's gig was up. He had a quick decision to make, and upon entering the front door, he decided to threaten her with the same six-inch knife. He bound her wrists with bedsheets and announced to her that Susan Hale was dead. Wow, Rachel. So, so much to unpack there. To begin with, it says a lot about a person that he he basically tied up and watched her die. Yeah, his fiance. Yeah. And wow. and like he was quite cool and calculated, right? So yeah. he hit, hits her over the head with a hammer, takes her body to the bedroom. He then ties her up and then goes back to the kitchen. Like none of this, none of these items are within reach. Nor yeah. is Susan struggling for her life or screaming. You know, every everything, every step that he takes is calculated and considered, in my opinion. Yeah, and it feels like these are steps that these are not spur the moment thoughts. I can do this. Sound it feels to me like maybe he's thought about this in the past. So he already kind of knows the routine of what to do, if that makes sense. How often do we talk about criminals um and their behaviors escalating slowly? And uh yeah, I absolutely wouldn't put it past him to have fantasized about something like this. Wow. On this occasion, though, initially David's intention wasn't to cause Sarah any harm. However, he did see an opportunity to take some money and make his getaway, hence why he bound and gagged her. Because don't forget, I'd already mentioned he was unemployed and, you know, he'd been living in the flat, but on very little money. So obviously seeing Sarah, um, he he saw an opportunity. Okay, I can grab some cash and, and make a getaway. So whilst bound and gagged, he demanded details for Sarah's bank card and pin and left the flat, heading for the nearest ATM at the local supermarket, where he withdrew £150 and purchased some cigarettes before heading back home. At this point, he once again sat down calmly and lit his cigarette with the intention of having a conversation with Sarah, who was, as you can imagine, quite terrified at this point. But as soon as he removed her gag, Sarah began sobbing. And once again, David saw red. Reapplying the gag, he proceeded to tear off her clothes and raped her. After the sexual assault, David went on to stab her twice in the neck before fleeing the flat. He withdrew an additional £100 with Sarah's stolen bank card and took the train to Weymouth in Dorset. Just a quick one, Rachel. Maybe I'm being a bit slow here. What exactly did he see Red about? What did she do? She was sobbing. Just his disrespect for women. Again, my, my thoughts on this case and this individual was just that he just did not respect women. He saw her as pathetic, you know, oh God, she's crying. Like she deserves it. Well, okay then. And bearing in mind, like I'll go on to explain, but a lot of, he, he confessed a lot of the detail, which is why we know, the, the the level of information that we do know. I guess also if he confessed, I know you're going to get onto it, so I won't push you, but if he confessed, that indicates that maybe he took some pleasure in confessing to be able to say what he did, almost like a badge of honour or pride or something like that. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, but it seems like if you feel guilt or remorse, you'd be too ashamed to say what you did. And like he, he said that earlier, he taught, he 
Oh, no, no, sorry. Susan taunted him. Yeah, I know, I know, he's all there. But but even so... So, again, a little bit of context. And I don't know how I feel about saying this. Might want to edit this part out. I don't know. We'll see how it it goes. Um, But he was diagnosed with personality disorder um, at the point of his confession. Um, So... So that means that we're talking... Are two words that we've learned to hate here: diminished responsibility, but also, um, what what type of personality disorder? Well, I, it 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 literally just said personality disorder, oh, uh, okay. so it didn't go into detail. Um, what I will say is, um, you'd be surprised those two words that we've learned to um accommodate on this pod were not included in uh in in this particular case. So okay. we'll we'll get onto that though. Let's yes. not jump ahead. So while Susan's body had lain undetected in that ground floor flat for eight days, Sarah's disappearance was flagged to the police only hours later on the evening of the 15th of March, when she had failed to return home to her family. When her husband, Peter Merrick, contacted Carewatch, the care agency his wife worked for, he discovered that she'd failed to keep any of her afternoon appointments, which was very unusual for her, and he immediately raised the alarm with the local authorities. He set out in his car in an attempt to locate his wife's whereabouts, and soon after, he discovered her vehicle was parked outside the block of flats on Megson Avenue. Knowing Susan well, as both her and his wife had formed a close bond over the years, she had cared for her. He felt something untoward had gone on inside the property, and so he dialed 999 to inform the police that they needed to access the ground floor apartment, and officers were on the scene within minutes. Police broke down the front door to Susan's flat and upon entry found the body of Sarah, still bound and gagged, lying in the hall. They went on to discover Susan's body in the bedroom and the manhunt for the only other resident at the address. Convicted rapist David William Tiley began. David was on the run for just 48 hours before being caught, having initially travelled 50 miles by train to the town of Weymouth before making his way onto Swanage on the south coast of England at which point he was arrested by Dorset Police at 8am on Saturday the 17th of March, whilst he was sleeping rough on the seafront. More than 50 officers from across the country were involved in the manhunt to find David Tiley. His movements had been tracked almost immediately following his escape, using CCTV images which had initially spotted him on the Southwest train service, and then on subsequent street and public transport cameras. Once in custody, he was transferred to a police station in Hampshire for questioning, where he admitted to the murders of both Susan Hale and Sarah Merritt. At the time of this confession, Tyler was diagnosed with having a personality disorder, which we just touched on. But that didn't seem to impact the trial judge in his sentencing of the rapist and soon to be a convicted murderer. So he pled guilty to everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. that's a relief. And anyway, at least for the families. Of the two victims. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, spared a trial. Yeah. However, it did go to trial at Winchester Crown Court because, um, and I didn't know this, I'm not, you probably do, because you're a lot more educated in the justice system than I am. But when a judge does not have the powers to grant greater sentences, a case will go to court at like a Crown Court so that a superior judge can um, grant like a, a, a higher. Um, sentence for an individual. Oh yeah, it's it's normal for a case to go from magistrates to um to a crown court. It's usually the rule of thumb is if a um prison sentence is inevitable, like 
it has to be a prison sentence for the crime. It normally gets bumped up to a Crown Court. Now, um, it doesn't mean, usually it doesn't mean that there has to be a trial, or usually it goes up there for like, um, and how they plead, and then they'll. Yeah, sorry, I've I've used the wrong word there. Absolutely, there wasn't like a trial with like witnesses. There was the opportunity for the victim impact statements to come out, oh, okay, yeah. and for um the courtroom to hear of his past criminal convictions before the the judge passed his sentence. Oh, okay, sorry, Rachel, I get you now. No, just... no, I apologize. I'd, I'd I'd use the word trial like there was a prosecution and defense, but no, there was there were there was no defense in this particular case. But that case against David Tiley was presented at Winchester Crown Court on the 14th of June 2007, where members of the court heard about his past convictions and the harrowing details of what had happened to his victims over the course of those nine days in March. They also had the opportunity to hear from the families of both victims. Sarah's husband, Peter Merritt, spoke about the devastating loss of his wife. Sarah didn't do anything to deserve such an end to her life. I was truly robbed by this man that day. I now know what it means to be truly heartbroken. I can't get the thought out of my head. I'm just giving myself goosebumps, like a statement. I cannot get the thought out of my mind of how scared and so very afraid she must have been that day and that I could do nothing to help her in her hour of need. I pray to God that she didn't suffer for long. Sarah was a kind and loving person whose loss has devastated our whole family. She was proud to be a carer and happy to provide comfort and support for those she cared for. She was a loving mother to our two children and always tried to do her best for her family. As well as my wife, she was my best friend. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? What a love that husband had for his wife. Like, so eloquent. But, like, absolutely right word, heartbreaking. It is, because you've got to think, I know there's exceptions. And the reason why the exceptions are so shocking because they are exceptions. But if you go into a caring profession, it normally says a lot about the personality of the person who's gone in. It, Absolutely. They're, they're, usually, they're usually caught above anyway, aren't they? So, I mean, I can't imagine, like, try and put yourself in in his shoes. It'd be, what does it say, though? She doesn't turn up for dinner and immediately he's like, something's not right here. Like, she obviously had a lot of love for her family as well to always be home on the clock, you know, regardless of her busy work schedule, making time for family dinner and, and, you know, for him to have gone, yeah, absolutely, something's not right. What about, if I'm skipping ahead, tell me and I'll I'll shut up, but what about the first um, crime that he committed? If, If I'm not wrong he got recalled once from being released and then got released again so surely he'd have to go through the parole system and probation system and and they'd have to determine is he a risk to um to society to others and if he had a personality disorder don't they get like mental health checks and stuff like that well, we'll go on to talk about that, but okay, just sorry. just to clarify, I didn't touch on it. He was recalled three times, but the other two times there was nothing there that I can tell you. But yeah, he got recalled three times, but he just got let out halfway through his sentencing. Um, we will go on to the fact that of his classification as a as an as an offender. We we do touch on that at the end okay. uh, in a moment, but um that's about it. Okay, I'll let you crack on them. 
David Chopra, one of Susan Hale's five grown-up sons, also made a statement to the court where he mentioned the horrific details of what has happened to my mother and Mrs Merritt have shocked the whole family to the core. He went on to tell the court that his mother had been robbed of a natural, peaceful ending to her life. Another family member for Sue commented on her loss. We all remember Sue as a happy, outgoing and bubbly person who was loved dearly and will be missed greatly. Despite the challenges that her disability posed, she always faced them with humour and dignity. We have found it very difficult to come to terms with her death and cannot understand why this has happened to such a vulnerable, loving person. All the while, David Tiley sat there without emotion as the families of his victims described the impact the murders had had on their lives. David William Tiley was sentenced to life imprisonment, with the judge, Mr Justice Irwin, commenting, On each count, you will go to prison for life. These offences are quite exceptionally serious and the only appropriate sentence should be a whole life order. The only proper punishment for you is that you must never be released. The brutality and evil defies adequate description. The pain and grief of the victims' families left in the wake of deaths is profound. We have heard it expressed poignantly and with dignity today. One's hearts go out to them. Nothing can repair the damage done to them. So he got, he's on the whole life tariff list. He's one of 73, I think, at last count. Individuals who will never be released from prison. It's crazy though, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes, Rachel, I wonder why we do a podcast because every single time I think to myself that these people shouldn't have to be remembered with love, remembered fondly, because they should still be around. It makes me wonder about about the future of humanity, that these people take such pleasure from committing such horrible acts. It's I can't. I, I guess I can't comprehend it because I couldn't do it myself. But I can't yeah, disagree yeah, with you. Like yeah. another case that you know shouldn't shouldn't have happened. But but I wanted to end on something that probably a lot of what our listeners are thinking, and something that I know will be playing on your mind is how did David Tiley go? Like how did he? How was he released from prison with a personality disorder? That wasn't known at the time, obviously, that only got diagnosed at the time that he was charged and um, found guilty of, of these murders. But how was he allowed out, really, from his first conviction? And, yeah, I, I know he only got six years, but, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to go into a bit of detail back in 2007, what, what this case triggered. So this particular case sparked a review into the multi-agency public protection arrangements. That's known as MAPA, so the, the abbreviation MAPA. Heard it's of it? A, I'm fully aware of MAPA, yes. So oh. it's, it's MAPA is well known for not being useful. For not being useful? Is that sitting your thunder? No. Okay, MAPA is, MAPA is well known for not being as good as what it should be and what it was set up for. Well, you won't be surprised with what I'm about to say then. Yeah. So MAPA originally classified David Tiley as a medium to low risk offender. MAPA was introduced in the UK in 2001 with the aim to improve interagency collaboration between police, probation and prison services and on occasions where required the NHS and local authorities too. 
Its intention was that all areas should be working together to identify, assess and manage individuals who posed a risk of harm to others. Whilst detectives at the time of the manhunt described Tali as an exceptionally dangerous individual, so don't forget, for those 48 hours he was on the run, that's how he was described to the general public. As I've just mentioned, he was categorised under MAPA as a low to medium risk offender, so he felt under a Cat 1 classification. That was just a registered sexual offender. And when I say just, that's like the lowest category. So almost like not like prioritized. If you think of the amount of people that will be on the mapper, like register. So I just say, just give people out there probably don't understand. I believe there's like 10 to 1,000, probably actually in six figures now. And it's just that the system is stretched. So they have to, unfortunately, um, some of the categorization is determined on available resources. Imagine you're given a list of your 10 favorite movies mm-hmm. and you have to list them one to 10. Sometimes you put one a little bit lower because the others are more favorites. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. the same, it's the same sort of thing. If, if they put all of them, and this is wrong, by the way, but if they put all of them as they wished, then they don't have enough resources to they're monitor them. Yeah, and also, yeah. also, unfortunately, it means that some people who should be lower down due to biases by the, um, usually the police force, mm-hmm. get over-managed, which means, that, which means that when they come to assess it, they have to, they have to, like you said, the police said they were considered extremely dangerous. Mm. They have to try and take those biases into account. So it's really that's why it's such a good idea, but it's it's so complicated in the actual execution. Yeah, yeah. the co- The concept is absolutely spot on with all the different agencies working together. But how often have we heard it in press releases about you know people that are given that are put into the care of Sorry, children that are put into the care of individuals that have these past criminal convictions and, you know, even like the care system is inundated to the point where they they can't do all of the regular checks to make sure that those children in care are being looked after properly and then they slip through the cracks. Like every agency, every area seems to be like under pressure at breaking point, doesn't it? It does, yes. With what we know about David Tiley now, I believe he should have been registered as at least a cat two or three. So that's where offenders pose significant violent risk to others and require a more active multi-agency case management. So instead of a probation officer just checking in or keeping tabs on the file, the police may have done spot checks or he may have been, you know, um, reviewed more often. Susan may have been checked in on as well, if that had been the case. But as with these cases that we always talk about, isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? It is. And like this case is just another tragic loss of human life at the hands of a convict who should not have been out of prison, should he? No, but if he was on a determinate sentence, mm. then well, yeah. I guess at some point they have to just they have to just say, There you go. Absolutely. And at the time of the review, Assistant Chief Constable Simon Cole of Hampshire Police defended the police monitoring in place, 
suggesting that Tiley was the subject of visits in accordance with the national standards. He went on to comment that this type of offender is very difficult to manage within the community. This is a significant problem for society in terms of balancing the need to protect the community whilst at the same time managing offenders within the justice system. You see, the problem is he won't be lying there, but no. the way these things work is depending on your category level, depends on mm. how many visits you get by what's yeah. called the public protection unit. Yeah. And if you're at the lowest level, you're likely to be seen once or twice a year and sometimes... Mm they replace the visits with telephone calls yeah. to, to save time. So so he won't be lying that he would be monitored, but it's a frequency because the, the ones who are at the very top, I believe, I can't see his gospel, but I believe it's every like two to four weeks or something like that. So it's it's he won't be lying, but it could be literally once a year if yeah. at the lowest level. No, absolutely. And like... Again, their hands are tied unless there's bias in the in that particular case where they're like, no, let's check in on him more than the system tells us to. They can only do so much, right? Exactly. He's been assessed at MAPA level as a cat one. Exactly. And the problem is, you see, what feeds into because your level isn't fixed. Like once you're there, you're not there mm. forever. But no. It's determined by the reports from the PPU, like public protection unit, and if they don't visit them often, those reports and aren't often, so they're more likely to stay at the level. Let's be honest as well, his breach of bail was only because he failed to notify his probation officer of his new addresses. He wasn't, he, as far as I'm aware from the articles that I read and the, the review that I did in terms of the research, he wasn't recalled to prison for violent acts of crime. So that that sex offender kind of like classification wouldn't have needed to change for for his for the, the breach of conditions that he failed to meet, would it? Like it would. It would have just been that this this guy's just a bit dim and doesn't follow the rules. Like, well, it, it, I think maybe it's changed because of the result of cases like this. But I know a lot of the time they're only very short, but they do normally result in maybe one, two, three month prison sentences if you fail to mm. do stuff like that nowadays. Um well I think I think because he'd done it three times, they gave him a 10 month sentence yeah. that had ended up at, at the midway point in the January of 2007. Crazy. But yeah, yeah, m- mad. Uh, Assistant Chief Constable Simon Cole went on to say, short of 24-hour surveillance or locking an offender up for life, there can be no guarantees and it is just not possible for agencies involved to do that. I truly believe that the professionals involved in monitoring this man did their best working within the system. Of course. I mean, sorry, of course, Rachel. If, again, he's not wrong, he could have been visited every single day and he he could have still, obviously, it meant he but wouldn't he have been able to like? Wouldn't he have been able to like raise a complaint that that was um, you know, against his basic human rights being visited every single day? Like, no, if they can, I mean, criminals just, have yeah, like, you know, it depends on the risk level. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, yeah. he could, he could have still committed. So he is right, but and and I, you know, that wasn't my statement there. That was still the statement. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I know. Yeah, it was yeah. just okay. It's all just a bit subjective, isn't it? Really. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, everything he's saying is factually correct. It's just a real, like, painful reminder that the system isn't up to scratch. 
Yes. So this has been season four, episode three, entitled Breach of Bail. So, Andrew, what did you think of the case? Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking and just really sad. But, I mean, thanks for bringing it. It's only through awareness of people, everyone in society, Mm. that things can change. Because change happens when the consensus is that change needs to happen. And if people don't realise that change needs to happen, then it will never happen, if that makes sense. So it's good. I mean, I said, like, flippantly, why do we make a podcast? We make a podcast to raise awareness. So it's good that these things are out there. It's really sad that it happened. And I I really do um, thank the person who brought this to us, who brought this to our attention. I've not heard of this before. So, um, so I don't know if he's been on other podcasts or not, but either way, it's it's good that we learn these things and we can all learn a little bit more as we go along, can't we? Yeah, and you know, I do believe that in some instances, a prison sentence can help with the rehabilitation of a criminal. Of but I also believe that everyone has a duty to protect themselves and. Obviously, we touched on it earlier, be made aware of like someone's past, especially when there's a criminal conviction against women, like you said earlier, um, and that they need to make their own decisions. But ultimately, you know, David Tiley massively took advantage of vulnerable Susan yes. and her carer and shouldn't have been allowed to do that. And it's, you know, it's not fair what's happened here. So, yeah, really tragic case. Yeah, definitely. Really tragic. Um, Really tragic. Thank you, Rachel, for bringing this to our attention. Okay, well, for one last time, it was safe for you to do so. I'd like you to sit back, relax, close your eyes and picture the scene. You've met a man who offers to look after you, worship and adore you. And despite his past, he's definitely the one for you. So what do you do when it doesn't turn out to be the happily ever after you'd imagined? Thanks all, and until next week, goodbye. Yes, goodbye, everyone.